Hi everyone, welcome back to Politics with Gen Z. On this episode, I'm honored to welcome our special guest, Senator Chevron Jones, who represents Florida's Senate 35 District in the Florida Senate. Welcome to the show, Senator. Thank you so much for having me, Shanna. Thank you for being here. We really appreciate it. First, I would like to ask you to give the audience some background of how you got started in politics so that they can get to know you a little better. I appreciate that. So um, first of all, again, I'm so happy that you're doing this. Uh, this is an important conversation. This is an important series that you're doing to get to know elected officials. So I appreciate it. Uh, so I, my degree is actually in biochemistry. I wasn't a, pub, a, a political science major. I wasn't an English major or uh, a lot of these other majors that people, uh, uh, they major in thinking that that's the direction you have to go to go into politics. My degree is actually in biochemistry and molecular biology. Uh, I was supposed to go to med school. I got accepted into two different med schools, but I decided not to go uh, because I uh, wanted to take a year off and before before getting into uh, going into med school. But my dad encouraged my uh, encouraged me that I should find something to do while I'm home. So I decided to go be a teacher. So I went to teach AP Bio, uh, and it was only supposed to be for a year. One year turned into nine years in being in the classroom. Uh, it was because I really loved my students. I enjoyed it so much. One year, uh, they put me in a level one class to teach environmental science. And this was, this is students who can't read uh, on a sixth, seventh grade level. Uh, and those young men, uh, it was predominantly black and Hispanic young men who were in my class. They were supposed to graduate um, uh, the year I was teaching, but they were pushed back because of a new law that had just gotten passed. And uh, I was so upset with how they were treating students. I was upset with how they were treating teachers. Uh, and so I said, you know what? I'm gonna run for office. I spoke to my principal and I told him that I didn't like I didn't like it. Uh, and he told me you should run for office. And I did, I ran for office. Wow, that's a great story. So you really got into office to help with the education system and try to solve the problems that you were seeing. I did. I wanted to get into help education, but um, dealing with a state of 22 million people, that changed quickly because I realized that education was the only, wasn't the only thing that Florida was dealing with at the time. I'm so sorry. You cut out at the end of that. Can no, I say because I just had to realize that education wasn't the only thing that Florida was dealing with at the time. It was a uh, great issues that we were dealing with. Right. OK, well, that's a wonderful story. I'm so glad that you're we definitely need people in politics who are not just going into it for, I don't know, to have uh, political power. Right. So that's very inspiring. Um, right. And so I know that you are the first openly gay uh, black man in the Florida Senate. Is that correct? So the the first the first LGBTQ person elected to the Florida Senate in Florida's history and the first black person um, to LGBTQ person in Florida's history. Yes. Wow, that's really cool. Um, so I know you have definitely experience representing um, a minority in this community yeah. and in the Miami Guardian Miami Guardians community mm -hmm. that you represent. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to talk a little bit about um, the parents' rights and education bill and how that is being implemented in education throughout the state. Yeah. Perfect. So I know that the uh, bill, which has been branded the Don't Say Gay Bill by opponents, uh, prohibits educators from discussing sexual orientation or gender identity in grades kindergarten through third grade. Can you explain what you think that looks like in practice? Because obviously we've seen like a lot of rhetoric surrounding that. 
But as an educator yourself, how do you think that that's implemented? Well, that, that's the problem. I don't know. I don't know how the school districts are going to be able to implement it because unless you're going to put cameras inside teachers' classrooms to see how that's uh, how uh, how teachers are uh, teaching in their classroom, that's the only way that you will be able to track something uh, as right. egregious as that. Um, but you I mean in the interim, what they can do is you can spark fear. Uh, in teachers that will uh, that will make them not have want to have these conversations at all. And I think we're already seeing that. I think you see what just happened in Orange County where teachers uh, have already been advised not to have the rainbow uh, stickers on the, uh, or the rainbow flags or uh, the safe space zone stickers outside of their classroom or pictures of your significant other uh, in there. And I know the Orange, Orange County was asked or whether or not this was their policy, they didn't deny it, uh, but they also right. made it clear that uh, the, the law is the law. Uh, and, I, and I say that all of that to say that yeah, this is exactly what uh, my colleagues wanted to happen. They wanted to create this confusion that we see right now uh, that will uh, that will confuse teachers, that will confuse school districts, uh, that will have them not wanting to put, have pictures of their significant others on their desk or to not have the rainbow flag, which is a freedom of expression, right? Yeah. Uh, unless, unless we're talking about totally removing um, the uh, our First Amendment rights that gives everyone the opportunity to be able to do those type of things, then I don't think we should be in the business. Nobody, no government should be in the business of silencing uh, people from being able to express who they are, who they love. Uh, and it's just, I think it's, it's too far into this authoritarian um, zone that we as a country is slowly but surely uh, that we're that we're moving into. Uh, I think that we it will behoove us to just be very clear that everyone has the right to live a not just a a safe life, but people have the opportunity to live a uh, a free life. Right. Yeah, that's definitely super important. Yes. When I read, when I saw the bill in the headlines and I read the bill, I thought that the same type of thing, that it was more an act of intimidation almost to like scare teachers into conforming with the not talking about certain topics. It reminded me of the like call to stop teaching critical race theory in schools, which was never really being taught. Um, So it's kind of like a scare tactic almost, which I guess is super damaging for teachers because the best teachers are the ones that share their own experience and you can share a connection with, at least in my experience. Right. So, right. I mean, you know, that's actually true, Shannon, because I mean, when I I was in the classroom, my students, they came and share some very personal things with me. And to this day, I would take some, all of it because none of it was life threatening, but yeah, I would take those things to my grave. Right. Because yeah. a lot of students, when they come to school, they don't have anyone to talk to. So when my students would come to me and say, hey, Jones, can I talk to you about something? As long as it wasn't life threatening, uh, of course, I, I would speak to them about it. And many of them did come talk to me about their sexuality or uh, many did come talk about a, a boyfriend uh, that they had, whether or not they should stay in this relationship or a girlfriend. Right. right. I mean, and that's, and that's just what, what I believe a teacher should be. Teachers are the first line of defense because during the week when school is in, children are more with the teacher than they are with their own parents. Right. Uh, so not allow that teacher to be that safe space for them. 
Exactly. So I guess, do you also think that this affects the students themselves and how they perceive their relationship with their teacher? Like, um, you would be scared to share something with your teacher because you feel as though they would have to report it to your parents. I know there was some discussion of that. How do you think that plays out? Well, I, th- I still believe that students are innocent. Students are not, I'm, I'm not innocent to where they're not privy to what's happening. I think they're, they're innocent to the point to where uh, I believe young people are still going to express it's up to the teachers and how they respond. I know me. I couldn't. St- I couldn't be in the classroom right now because I would probably get fired. Because if a student come to me and talk to me about something, I'm not going to report it. I'm not going to share that with uh, their parents. I'm not doing any of that. Uh, and yes, I will have a picture of my significant other on my desk, uh, and I will have my rainbow flag. Uh, it's. I mean, it's. I, there comes a point to where you have to pick your battles. And if, if, if the, uh, uh, a part of that battle is to making it clear that we as a state, we're wrong on this issue, I'm cool with that. Uh, and that's probably why I'm not in the classroom for that, for that very reason. But what, what, I, what I do believe we're going to see, you're going to see teachers being defiant to this right. new because they don't want to be subjected to this authoritarianism that we are seeing uh, in Florida. Right. So we've seen a mass exodus of teachers, not just in Florida, but around the country. Do you think that this has something to do with COVID, but also just more authoritarian control over what is discussed in the classroom? Yes, period. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, because... No one wants to be no one no one wants to be a part of something where they where where they have to defend themselves or if they have to go to work every day walking on eggshells because they don't know what whether whether or not what they're doing is right or wrong, right? right. And they're wrong in it, especially if I have a, a picture of my significant other on my desk. You know, what's the wrong in that? Right, absolutely. That's yeah. certainly something that this the state should not be controlling what teachers share. Exactly, exactly. That's not um, the type of dangerous sexual education that they are supposedly waging a war against. So I guess as a generation, that's really frustrating for us to see, you know, the attempt to try to remove some type of connection or just freedom of expression within the classroom, which for many people is a safe space. Exactly, exactly. and, 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 here, and here, here's my thing. Yeah, my I, my suggestion, and I shared this with a group of students. My suggestion would be that that students at the school that they create they they should create their own safe spaces also, right? Uh, and create those safe spaces to where hey, if I can't go talk to a teacher, then we'll create our own group of safe space to where we can discuss those things. Uh, or also something like our office will be doing in the new school year. Make our office a, we're going to make our office a safe space. For young people, if they want to meet, if they uh, they need to talk to a counselor, we're going to try to get a counselor here one time a week. So we're going to make this a safe space, and we're going to advertise it as such that if young people need to come get help, guidance, or anything like that, they can come right into our office and do it. That's a wonderful initiative. Yeah, I think um, you know clubs like the LGBTQ Alliance yep. or the Gay Straight Alliance are great ways for students to you know share safe space with each other. Yes. Um, but are those clubs? theoretically allowed under this law, maybe above grades three or that's the vagueness of the bill that because the bill does says uh, age three to grade three, but it also says or age appropriate. That's the portion that's confusing because 
who decide who decides what's age appropriate? Right. Is it the teachers? Is it the county? Exactly. Right. Okay. So I guess people have to try to define that for themselves, and hopefully it will be defined in a way that is gives more leeway, a little bit more lenient than exactly. what some have interpreted the bill to think. Exactly. Okay, great. So I know you're on the board of advisors for HBCUs for President Biden. I mm-hmm. thought that was super cool. I wanted to ask you what your priorities are, what you think are the major things that we should be doing for those institutions. Yeah, so we just came out with our agenda uh, last month. And uh, one of the areas um, that I'm most passionate about and I'm happy about that the board is going to uh, pay a closer attention to is the um, internal and external infrastructure of aging HBCU buildings. Okay. Um, we have to make sure that as far as internally, that we are the infrastructure as far as um, uh, um, uh, that we're up to par with the digital age when it comes right. to uh, our HBCUs and making sure that everyone who lives on campus and those who are on campus have the access needed in order to uh, enjoy their educational experience. Right. Uh, but also externally, the aging buildings that we have. <clears throat> I think the HBCUs, there are a great deal of uh, aging buildings uh, on campuses uh, that need some federal support in order for those students to learn within those uh, in those buildings. A lot of HBCUs don't receive um, uh, the uh, equal funding that some of the PWIs receive. Right. Uh, and, uh, some of the school HBCUs are smaller in number, and some of them are not. Uh, and so we want to look for what does parity look like when state legislatures are giving dollars to colleges and universities? How can we make sure that HBCUs are receiving the same type of funding or the same type of adequate funding uh, when it comes to uh, education? Period. I think education is the greatest is the great equalizer of everything, right? And right. because. We, we should be looking at ways in which everybody, no matter where they're being educated, uh, is receiving the resources and tools that they need in order to, to, to thrive within the institution that they are attending. Absolutely. And I know we see a lot of differentiation in terms of the funding that schools receive in Florida because it's funded by income tax in just, you know, um, primary school and secondary school as well. Right. Do you have any specific recommendations for how we can try to even out that playing field? I think one way that I think you can even out the playing field when it comes to um, um, uh, colleges and universities uh, is a in making sure that when you are when when we're looking at how we are funding the schools, uh, making sure that the, the the criteria that is being used to fund those schools uh, are are equal to uh, are equal to how we're funding PWI schools. Like, what is what does that criteria look like? You know, when you're doing performance based funding, uh, traditionally uh, HBCUs HBCUs sometimes fall under um, the threshold to be able to receive extra dollars if they're performing well for uh, in, in for for various different type of reasons. May it be uh, an enrollment uh, reason? May it be any other type of reason of infrastructure that doesn't exist within that particular institution? Right. Uh, Make sure that we're, we're how we are or what we're doing to outline uh, access to performance-based funding dollars. Uh, making sure that HBCUs have a fair chance, should I say, to receive to receive uh, those dollars. And also, when it comes to research schools, research schools are based on a tiered system. Uh, most HBCUs, when it comes to research, are only are tier one, tier two. To receive tier three or tier four funding. 
um, they have HBCUs have to be recognized as such. Uh, and so I think it, it would be behoove us as a education, uh, as a as a country, to figure out what a lot of these uh, accreditation um, organizations that uh, they issues accreditation for research that they are that they are giving constructive feedback of what HBCUs need to do to move from tier to tier, uh, and I think that's something. We're focusing on on the HBCU task force. Um, not only is it important, it's also necessary because that means we have access to a greater deal of funding when you are able to set the rules and the system up to be able to move to these different tiered systems. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. I know in Florida we have like the bright future system for yep. some of our major colleges and universities. Obviously, um, you know, there's different racial implications to like the SAT in and of itself. But if we remove that barrier for the moment, I have heard talks of um, DeSantis trying to take away some of the funding for bright futures. Is that, does that seem like something that's going to happen? Or do you think that, um, you know, the legislator is doing a good job of preventing that? Yeah. Or what is that? No. Like? So there, year before last, they tried to do, um, uh, Year before last, they tried to cut performance. I mean, tried to cut um, bright futures, and that didn't go over too well. And the governor is actually, to his credit, I have to give credit where credit is due. The governor he shut that down early and basically said that we we're not doing that. So that bill died. Okay. Um, and but I will say that how we give out bright futures, we need to relook at because right. there is no equity in, in how the bright futures dollars are are given are given out. Uh, yeah. And I express that in committee, and I will continue to express that uh, because if the, if 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 bright futures is need based, then we need to make sure that it's set up in a way to where those who are in need are receiving the dollar. Right, absolutely. Because right now, I don't barriers to if a, if a child can or cannot receive Bright Future Scholarship, especially if it's based off of us keeping people here within the state of Florida, and if it's uh, if it's going to encourage individuals who desire to go to college and they have the criteria to be able to go, uh, I think we should be doing everything we can to make sure that those individuals can can go, and the state can pay for it, and that we can pay for it. Right, absolutely. So removing the like baseline requirement and shifting it more to to needs based to serve underserved communities. Exactly. Do you think would be a better um, system then? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and, and I'll tell and I'll tell you why because those individuals who who receive scholarship based off of based off of need, they right. just go to college, but they don't have the ability to go to college, right? And yeah. so I think in many of them fall into various different categories, whether they fall into the category of being a first gen to go to college, or maybe they fall into a category of being um, a, uh, a foster child. Uh, and so there, right. there, there are different criteria that where many of these young people, they fall into these categories. Uh, so I think we should definitely look at it from, uh, from being, uh, at, at it being need based because that's what it was intended to be. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think that's a great um, idea and recommendation. I, I hope that that is realized in the next few yeah. years. Um, to bounce back to the LGBTQ rights things for a moment, if you don't mind, um, the recent Dobbs decision 
Clarence Thomas mentioned in his concurring opinion that um, the court should revisit the precedence of Obergefell v. Hodges and Lawrence v. Texas, which obviously, uh, because he said that they relied on the same legal reasoning. They're both cases that concern LGBTQ marriage and LGBTQ rights in terms of sodomy laws. What do you think that this means for LGBTQ LGBTQ rights? There have obviously been um, opponents of this who have said that, you know, this means that the cases that they've chosen for the docket could theoretically roll back some of those rights. Do you think that's a real possibility or it's more just rallying up the base type of rhetoric? No, no, I don't I don't think I don't think this is rhetoric at all. I, I think that I think what we are seeing is a conservative court, Supreme Court, a conservative Supreme Court who is finally being able or will be able to do what they have been wanting to do for quite some time. Um, because when, if you can roll back a 50-year precedent right. and find reason to roll back that 50-year precedent, that means that there are other rights that the conservatives have for years have tried to come after, or even in recent years to come after, toward now they can find some legal reasons to be able to do it, even if it's along the same lines as Justice Thomas made mention of. So that includes right. LGBTQ rights. That also includes voting rights. Um, yes. That also includes our environment. Um, and that, some of those things that have already been ruled on. Yeah. Um, so I think we, we're going to have to be extremely... Um, careful and how we move in this new conservative court season. Right. And I'll be very frank and honest. I don't think this is, I think this is not a Democrat Republican issue. I think every last one of us should be very alarmed and scared. Um, yeah. Of what's happening. That's what I was afraid of, but it's definitely seems very true and unfortunate to hear. Um, obviously, there's not much we can do in terms right. of what the court looks like at the moment, but, um, you know, future change or perhaps codifying some of these laws in terms of in Congress or in state laws. What do you think are specific organizations or actions that people of my generation or a little older, a little younger could take to try to enact you know, real political change in terms along the lines that we want to see in the future. Yeah, I think I think right now there are a lot of organizations that are on the ground and on the field. They're actually doing work. I mean, you have uh, the new Florida majority. You have uh, the uh, the young Democrats or, who are out there. Uh, you have uh, the NAACP group. You have the young Latinas uh, group. You have all these different groups who are doing work. Um, uh, out in the uh, out in the community to prepare for November election, and also prepare for election on um, the general um, this year, uh, that's get, getting ready for uh, uh, the 2024 elections. So you, you see a, a lot of these groups happening. I think yeah that people should get involved and plug into some of these groups of these interests that interest them. Uh, yeah, and I know some mo some people are very keen on starting their own own thing, which is which is fine. I mean you can. Definitely start your own thing, but don't allow that to deter you, deter you from uh, plugging in to a another group to do the work because there's power in numbers, 
and collaboration yes. still works. It still works. I promise you, collaboration still works. <laughs> if people, you know, everyone can collaborate uh, in the areas that of, of greatest need, whether it's voting rights, whether it's LGBTQ rights, whether it's women rights. Find your area, plug into that area, um, and get busy. No one, no one can sit in the, on the sideline um, right now. I think it's it's literally all hands on deck. Uh, because if you allow it to happen, it will happen, and it will be hard to overturn later. It'll be hard to overturn later. Absolutely. Well, I think that's a great message, and that's sort of what we're about, to try to give people the education or the power to be able to then go out and join the organizations that they want in, in terms of talking to representatives like your or senators like yourself or other representatives in the community. Um, that's what this podcast is about. So I think that's it for now. I don't want to take up any more any more of your time, but I really, really appreciate you coming out and talking to us today. No, Shannon, I really appreciate you for doing this. Uh, I'm happy that this is the platform that we're, uh, you all are talking about politics and Gen Z. If I can get any more people onto your platform to that you can host, uh, please let me know. I will make that happen for you because trust me, you need as many people as you can on this platform for young people can not just hear from us, uh, but that for also for young people can engage with the moment. Exactly. Well, I really appreciate that. That's a very generous offer that I will definitely take you up on because definitely having as many people to talk with and engage with people on platforms that we listen to and understand is a great is a great way to I make change. Get people well, thank you so much for joining us again. And I'll let you get back to the rest of your day. Thank you, Shannon. No problem. I'm just going to end the broadcast.